Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and dating a Borg drone can't be easy. After all, men are from Mars, and women are from the Delta Quadrant. I'm joined in this episode once again by New York Times and USA Today bestselling author David R. George III. David is the author of many Star Trek novels, including tales set in the original series era, Deep Space Nine, and the Lost Era Adventures of the Enterprise B. He also blogs about cinema and reviews films at moviereviewsbygeorge.com. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Always glad to be back. It's great to have you back on the show once more. And today we'll be talking about Someone to Watch Over Me, the 22nd episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. A musical standard is a song that has achieved a canonical status due to its popularity and the universal emotions that it evokes. Any artist that covers a standard seeks to put their own personal touch on it to express their individuality while still communicating those relatable feelings. Dramatic storytelling often follows that same tune of borrowing familiar plots, and even a sci-fi series set in the 24th century isn't above reusing a classic premise. But like any cover song, a dramatic homage is an opportunity to use personality and improvisation to make something old new again. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Dave, it is great to have you back on the show. What is new in your world? What is new in my world? That's a good question. Um, I, I wish there were, were some, maybe some more new things. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a few irons in the fire uh, in terms of writing, but um, nothing um, concrete, nothing that I uh, can talk about right now. Um, but I'm working on it. Hopefully next time you have me on, I can say, oh, well, I've got this book coming out. But not, not right now. Sure. I've learned to recognize uh, good good news from authors in that uh, it's, I'm working on a bunch of stuff. I can't say anything. And it's like, that, that yeah. means good. Things are going good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't complain. Yeah. Although that usually doesn't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a chance for, for you to complain. Uh, I have to ask you as a diehard Mets fan, what do you think about the rumor that Alex Rodriguez is interested in buying the Mets? You know, uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, this, so this is the excruciating part of the uh, of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, Alex Rodriguez is an interesting guy. He grew up a Mets fan, so the rumor, uh, and he and he has more money than than the, oh, the yeah. rest of the universe. Yeah. Than, you know, more money than Oprah. So. Yeah. It, it makes sense that, that that could be a thing that could happen. Um, and, and Rodriguez, uh, when when he became a free agent for the first time, when he was with the Mariners, he wanted to come to the Mets. And I so hoped, you know, he was such a great player that the Mets would sign him. And, uh, of course, the Mets being the Mets, they messed it up in about the first 30 seconds of his free agency. Um <laughs> But then, you know, so I, I loved Rodriguez. He didn't come to the Mets. He went to the Rangers and then on to the Yankees. But when he, when he started using steroids, um, mm-hmm. that's when he lost me because I'm, I'm just uh, I'm a purist for the game. I just, I just want, you know, one guy's cheating. Let's not talk about the Astros. Of course, of course that also impacted the Mets. Yeah. Um, so Rodriguez, is, he's a he's – a, a lot of gray area with Rodriguez, right? He's, he's a good guy. He's a bad guy. He was a great ball player, but then he also cheated. Having said that, I would pretty much want anybody in the world to buy the Mets right now because their current ownership, which they've had for for 20 years, is dreadful. And it's terrible to root for a team where you can change the players, you can change the manager, but you're not going to end up changing ownership. And if the ownership is bad, you're you're not going anywhere. 
And this ownership treats the Mets, who play in New York City, the capital of the world, like a small market team. Yeah. Uh, so it's tough. I'd have to imagine that a lot of Mets feel the same way that you, or Mets fans feel the same way that you do about A-Rod and the sort of good parts of his character and the parts that are, that are hard to get around. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough, but I know, I, I know there are plenty of Mets fans out there who want the Mets sold because they've started sending the Mets general manager, Brody Van Wagen, and they started sending him money on Venmo. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A dollar wow. here, a penny there, $10 here. They, they just want something to happen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just everybody's trying to help out. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, you're reviewing movies at uh, Movie Reviews by George, uh, com. I always love your movie reviews. What were your uh, thoughts about the Oscar winners for this year? You know, there are a couple that we still haven't seen that we're dying to see. Uh, okay. and we're, trying to, we're trying to Netflix them. And just, of course, everybody and their mother is trying to get these discs. So we have been able to get, like, Parasite, which I started hearing like Hollywood buzz about Parasite back ended last year, be, you know, beginning in January. Sure. And then I started, I had friends uh, who started seeing it and, and have not heard one bad thing. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to. Yeah. Um, I, I thought overall, uh, you know, I liked, I liked the Academy Awards. I, I, I thought they were pretty good. There were, um, you know, I, I like Laura Dern a great deal. I think she won Best Supporting Actress for her yeah. body of work. I didn't think she, I think she did a fine job in Marriage Story, but her her she didn't have a lot of lot to do in that. I mean, she just there was not a lot of emotional range. Whereas, say Scarlett Johansson in Jojo Rabbit, uh, who all, was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, was fantastic and mm-hmm. just had had some heavy lifting in that film. And in fact, having not seen Parasite yet. Of all the films I did see last year, and I saw about about fifty movies from twenty nineteen, oh. um, Jojo Rabbit was my favorite. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, it did win for adapted screenplay. Um, yeah, Taika Waititi is yeah. very talented. Yeah. He's, a, he's a terrific writer and director. Yeah, and actor. <laughs> Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, Oscar often does that. You know, they reward somebody for like their body of work. Um, you know, instead of a specific role. And I'm certainly not mad about the Laura Dern win. And I think that you know, ScarJo was she was double nominated this year. She'll definitely be back in uh, in future years. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I think Brad Pitt also nominated for his body of work. Frankly, um, yeah. I mean, I, I I liked him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I, I thought there were other better performances. But he's been good for a very long time. So, I mean, that made sense, too. Yeah, certainly. Well, why did you want to talk about the specific episode, Someone to Watch Over Me, today? You know, I remember I, – well, first of all, you know, you and I – I've been on the, sh- the, the podcast a yeah. few times before. We did um, Corbel Might Maneuver from the original series. <laughs> yes. Uh, we did uh, All Good Things from Next Generation. And we did Duet from Deep Space Nine. I thought – all right, well, maybe it's time to do Voyager. Sure. Right? Let's, let's just go down the series. And so when I thought about Voyager, there were, there were a number of episodes um, that, that stood out for me. Uh, and this is one of the first that, that, that popped into my head. And I thought, you know, well, let's give this one a go. Because it's, um, it's kind of a quiet episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and certainly it's, it's flawed in, in some of its aspects. But I... I I did remember um, Jerry Ryan being particularly good in it, and especially Robert Picardo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a very uh, 
like I say, quiet and, and really touching episode. So I thought, well, let's give that a look. And when I, when I rewatched it before uh, you and I had this conversation, I, I was rewarded with the fact that I remembered that part of it correctly. That this was a really <laughs> solid Jerry Ryan, Robert Picardo episode. Yeah, certainly. Uh, speaking of movies, uh, I had you on Craft of Services, my movie podcast, a little while back to talk about the film Alien, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, as a movie buff, uh, I'm curious if you've seen the 1987 Ridley Scott film, Someone to Watch Over Me. I have not. I have not I, either. I, I, I'm not even <laughs> familiar with it. Uh, yeah, I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it before. It's Ridley Scott. It uh, stars Tom Berenger, Mimi Rogers, and Lorraine Bracco. And the synopsis is, uh, after a Manhattan socialite wit- witnesses her friend's murder at the hands of a ruthless mobster, a rookie detective, Berenger, is assigned to protect her. While working on the case, the two fall in love, and he's, choose- uh, he's forced to choose between his wife and the woman he's protecting, while the mobster will stop at nothing to silence her. Sounds different from the Voyager episode. A little different, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a, I, I think, uh, we, I know why I haven't heard of it. It's got a 69% Rotten Tomatoes uh, review, which uh, was probably one of Scott's lesser films, and not yeah. um, genre-related. Uh, a lot of his films, of course, like Robin Hood and Alien and stuff like that, is what mm-hmm. we hear about. But I'm always fascinated to find uh, movies uh, and TV show episodes that are named after uh, classic songs, like this one is, of course, uh, named after Someone to Watch Over Me by George and Ira Gershwin uh, that was written in 1926 and made pop- popular by Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, so on and so forth. Sting actually recorded a version of the song for the 87 film. And I've got a theory that I've brought up on Craft of Services. Uh, it's really more of an observation that I have, that films with titles that are inspired by songs are usually not very good. Um, <laughs> and I don't have super hard data. Uh, tastes vary. Um, but in my observation, this is true. Uh, some film examples would be um, In Dreams, uh, Only the Lonely, and depending on your own personal mileage, Pretty Woman. And that's just the Roy Orbison division. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, in dreams, uh, yeah, all of those. In Pretty Woman, you know, I know people love that film, and it's okay, but it, it's 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 got a surprisingly think, low Rotten Tomatoes review, actually. Well, I, really, well, I think I, I think the audience uh, kind of liked yeah, it, and yeah, I think yeah. it's remembered very fondly. I'm not sure if that's because of Julia Roberts or. Um, I, I think people. I think this movie is better, sort of, in the memory than it is in reality. Yeah. Um, but uh, I will. I will. You may well be right about the song titled movies. However, I will. I will throw up a stand by me to refute you. Oh sure, sure. Um, well, there's always uh, exceptions that prove the rule, but that's there are, yes, the that's definitely that a proves the rule. Yeah. Although it's based on. Oh no, that's right. The short story has a totally different name. Hmm. Yeah, the short story is called The Body. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, of course, um, Pretty Woman is uh, inspired by a story that we'll be talking about a little later. But I was just wondering, like, as a creator uh, and somebody who has written a lot of uh, different works and different genres, do you think that that instinct to name something comes at the last minute? Or are you inspired early in the process to call something Pretty Woman or something like that? Like, where is the... That's an interesting question, um, because I, I guess it probably depends on your inspiration. I, I actually love starting with a title, mm-hmm. but I don't typically, I try not to, I don't like titling things, I don't think I've ever titled anything after a song, and I, <laughs> I, I try not to go to, you know, Shakespeare quotes or biblical quotes or yeah, things right, like that, right. because that's, a, <laughs> that's kind of tried and true. Yeah. Sometimes 
sometimes it's really appropriate, but but very, I try and sort of avoid that. I think if you're if you're if you're if you have an idea for something, uh, and in the course of writing it, you you, you recall uh, uh, you come up with a song or a poem or something that really fits it. Yeah. Um, I think that's so. In the process, you might come up with that, or you know perhaps the song actually inspires you. You know, inspires your idea for 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 that. And actually, I I don't really have any notion of uh, you know. I knew, I knew plenty of people who worked on Voyager, but I don't really have a notion. This was written by the story was Brandon Braga. Yes, right. Um, and the the script was Michael Taylor. I don't really have any idea how they were inspired to write this. Whether the story came first or it, or, or it sprung out of the song. They heard the song and they thought, oh, you know, you know, this this might be a good tale between the doctor and seven um i always (laughs) with those movies that are bad i always wonder if it you know just the entire process is of writing the script is not necessarily great because the movie doesn't turn out well and then the last the last finishing touch is like what do i call this thing i guess i'll call it uh you know one for the road or or however they come up with uh, (laughs) that final title but i've noticed too i have another theory that is in its early stages of infancy which is Episodes that are based, uh, that are titled uh, after songs of Star Trek uh, tend to be pretty good. I mean, this is a pretty good example of one. Yeah. Um, you have to stretch a little bit. Like, there's a Voyager episode called Rise, which I really enjoy. Uh, it's the mm-hmm. one where they're on the space elevator. And right. that's a Herb Alpert song. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... Right. I, but I don't... Yeah, right. But I think... I think uh... Yeah, I, I very much doubt that that was titled after the song, right? but <laughs> but so you are stretching it. You are stretching it, but but there are yeah. I mean, certainly Deep Space Nine made great use of uh, of music with yeah. uh, with Vic Fontaine. Um, and, yeah, sure, and, uh, sure. And uh, what was um, oh, I'm trying to think of the title of the episode after Nog lost his leg and uh, it's depressed. only a paper moon. Yeah, it's only a paper moon. There you go. Yeah, it's Star Trek. You know, it's interesting. Star, I think. I think a, a lot of fans were initially sort of resistant to bringing in um, pop culture, uh, uh, even if it's older pop culture, into Star Trek. Yeah. Um, but I think they've done an overall pretty good job of of really broadening Star Trek's scope. Um, I think, and, and it's um, it's it's to good effect. Uh, I, I've been pleased with it, and this was a good. This example was a good. This episode was a good example of, of that. Yeah, for sure. Well, this episode is someone to watch over me. Like I said, it's the 22nd episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. It first aired on April 28th of 1999. The teleplay is by Michael Taylor. Taylor got his start in television writing for DS9, penning the teleplays for episodes like The Visitor and In the Pale Moonlight. He wrote 20 episodes in total of Star Trek Voyager, and he went on to be a writer and producer for the Battlestar Galactica reboot and its sequel series, Caprica, as well as the Dead Zone, Defiance, Turn, and Into the Badlands on AMC. The story is by Brandon Braga, who is, of course, a writer, producer, and co-creator of Star Trek Voyager. The episode was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil. McNeil first appeared in Star Trek as Cadet Nick Locarno in the TNG episode The First Duty and went on to play Lieutenant Tom Paris for all seven seasons of Voyager. He also directed four episodes of Voyager as well as four Enterprise episodes, and he's gone on to a prolific career as a television director. The start date for the episode is 52648.0, and your assignment, David, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Someone to Watch Over Me. Man, I 
really wish I remembered you did that before. <laughs> I do it every time. <laughs> I know, and I never remember, and then I'm I'm on the spot. <laughs> 25 words or fewer is not my strength. Oh, no. Uh, said the man who wrote a 225,000-word Star Trek <laughs> novel. Um, well, basically, Seven decides that she wants to explore... Um, human relationships, uh, human mating rituals. Eh, mating might be a bit strong, but dating rituals, let's say. And the doctor agrees to help her and then becomes smitten during the process. Of course. That's perfect. Uh, and uh, succinct, uh, totally totally fits. Uh, I would say, like, you know, maybe if you have to cut out articles or, uh, <laughs> or conjunctions or adjectives, but that was perfect. Uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about the episode. According to Robert Duncan McNeil, it was the writer's decision to not follow up on the romantic relationship broached between the Doctor and Seven in future episodes. Uh, although I do think they make a nice couple. Um, they also make a nice duo as Robert Picardo and Jerry Ryan provided their own vocals for the singing in the episode. The episode was a favorite of many of the cast and crew who worked on it. Producer and writer Brandon Braga could all, called the episode one of his favorites of the year, and showrunner Rick Berman described it as, quote, sweet, charming, funny, and poignant, unquote. Jerry Ryan said she was approached by editors on the set during the episode's post-production who praised the charming quality of the episode. She also remarked that the love story between Seven and the Doctor was lovely and touching, and the fact that Seven is unaware of the Doctor's affections at the end of the episode, quote, broke her heart. The conclusion of the episode had not been fully written when the shooting began, so care was taken by the actors and writers to develop the relationship between Seven and the Doctor gradually so it would culminate in that final scene. This is also the last time that the Shea Sandrine holoprogram is seen on screen, and the image of Fortress Ovum and the countless little warriors from the Doctor's <laughs> Love Amid the Stars photo, uh, Love Amid the Stars uh, PowerPoint is a still from the 1989 movie Look Who's Talking. No idea how they got that. Wow. That's some impressive research, Aaron. It's it's a very specific... I mean, you could get a picture of an ovum and sperm anywhere, but they got it from the movie Look Who's Talking for some reason. So Am I gonna, go. I'm going to guess that maybe that's a Paramount film? I looked it up and I don't think it is. I think it is... Oh! Yeah, uh, I think it's somebody else. So Wow. That's the usual excuse for seeing uh, stock footage from other movies on Star Trek. Let's talk about the guest stars in this episode. Scott Thompson appears as Toman. Thompson is perhaps best known for the Canadian sketch series The Kids in the Hall. He's also made regular appearances on The Larry Sanders Show, Hannibal, and The Simpsons. And Brian McNamara plays the role of Lieutenant William Chapman, the uh, hapless date companion that Seven has. McNamara's first major role in Hollywood was in the 1984 film The Flaming Kid. He had a recurring role on the Fox series The O.C., and he was a regular on the Lifetime series Army Wives, and he's had numerous guest roles on various TV shows. And let's talk about the meat of the episode itself. I think it seems somewhat obvious on watching the episode that the plot is lifted directly from the musical My Fair Lady, which was, of course, based on the George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion, which itself was based on the Greek myth of Pygmalion and Galatea, with the doctor in the Henry Iggins role in this case. You know, and it's um, it's interesting because in My Fair Lady, Best Picture, obviously, yeah. uh, uh, of, you know, famous film, uh, and, and Pygmalion, famous, and obviously the Greek myth. But I, I think this was... I think someone to watch over me, although it follows those beats, it, it's some, it's, it's, um, it's, 
it's quieter. I mean, I said it was a quiet episode earlier. It's quieter in a very good way. It's just um, there's some subtlety to it, not to Scott Thompson uh, and, and, and that, sto- that B storyline. Um, but, but with the Doctor and Seven, it's, it's just, you know, the moment when Robert Picardo, when they're singing You Are My Sunshine, yeah. and, and, and he's got his eyes closed and, 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 they're, and they're singing, and then he opens his eyes and he sees her, and there's just this beat where it's, it's subtle, it's not over the top, and it's, it's sort of gone in a flash when she looks back at him. But you can see that he suddenly realized he's developed some feelings. And it's, it's just, you know, My Fair Lady was much broader. You know, <laughs> yeah, Manly, right. the whole, those stories are much, much broader. They're played, you know, heavy-handedly, um, you know, to good effect. But there's, there's, there's a, a quiet about this episode, a subtlety um, that actually makes it, I think, kind of believable. Um, I mean, as far as you can talk about, you know, Borg drones and 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 uh, and holograms falling in love, it's believable. Yeah, in the circumstances of this world, it, it certainly is. It's it's a plot that I wouldn't, at first glance, expect to work in a Star Trek setting. But I think Star Trek, uh, as you said before, I think Star Trek shows a lot of latitude in that it can encompass. Uh, plots like this, it's such a specific homage as well. There's there's certain elements that wouldn't necessarily be necessary, but they still add from you know the original storyline, like like the bet between Paris and the Doctor. Of course, that provides the sort of late second act turn, but you don't need to have that and have Tom be the Colonel Pickering in this case. But yet right, they've got right. all these the, all those beats from the original story that are still in in the uh, in the Voyager one. Exactly, and it's uh, and it the way it's played, um, it, it's it's almost sitcomish, um, at least in the bit. beats that you know. I mean, it's it's you know, I get the pickering, but it's also it feels like you know, okay, this also could have been lifted from an episode of Three's Company. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, That's what I want to see. But, <laughs> right, yeah. But for all of that, I, I thought Robert Duncan Neal. Uh, as as the actor in the scene, as Paris, um, did a pretty good job. He didn't seem to be over the top with it. Um, you know, it it, it it it. I thought it was it was pretty pretty well done. Um, and and uh, I, you know, I wanted to ask you too. Speaking of when you're talking about songs and things, yeah. I thought it was interesting that at the end, um, actually, when the, when the doctor is practicing revealing to Seven how he feels about her, so he's in the holodeck, and the audience doesn't know that it's the holodeck. It led to believe that he's really talking to Seven, and he says to her, with great poignance, this past week has been unforgettable. And he he says it with just deep meaning and conviction and and deep emotion. I thought that the notion, the use of the word unforgettable, which of course is a famous song title, Sure. uh, Nat King Cole and, and, and his daughter, um, both, both the fantastic renditions. But I, 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 I wondered if that was, I mean, unforgettable is the right word, is you know, a perfect word there. But did they choose that word? They could have cho- chosen any number of words to describe how the doctor's experience with Seven had been over right. the course of, of their, their, but they chose unforgettable. And I, I just imagine that had to be intentional. Yeah, I mean, he could have said, I feel like I've got the world on a string or, or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it right, might right. be, I think you pointed out, I, I think I agree with uh, your supposition that it's just the right word 
And I don't necessarily think they meant to evoke another like standard song. You don't think so? I well, think I, but I think because... it was sort of happenstance that if I think they wrote it and they thought, oh, wait, if somebody well, you know what, if, if people do make that association, fine, like that's we're willing right. to accept that. But I, yeah. I do think it's the right it's just the right word. Yeah. Well, and what's great about it is that when he then actually sees Seven, when he's not in the holodeck practicing talking to her, and then yeah. he does talk to her and say, no, you know, she reveals that, you know, she's not going to be dating anymore because there's nobody suitable for her on the ship, which, yeah. of course, includes the doctor. Yeah. He says, and she says, well, wait, you were going to say something to me. And he says, well, the, the last week with you has been unforgettable. And he, and he just throws it away. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's even though they probably didn't film it close together, the the the, the two lines that he delivers uh, are in close proximity in the episode, and the different inflections. It's just a thing of beauty to watch Robert Picardo at work because I mean he just he just makes them both both readings work, um, and it's heartbreaking the second time when he doesn't get to really tell her how he feels. It just it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, that that fake out ending where he's confessing his love to her, but it's it's just a hollow sweet character is that's a really great use of the the holodeck of the future technology of the sci fi setting, being able to do something that if it was, say, a sitcom or something like that would be a dream sequence or some kind of monologue. But being able to use that as to just show, oh, wow, we get to see like how painful that is for him. And you get that emotional catharsis between them. But the status quo of this show that has to be episodic every week doesn't change. Right. Yeah. It, it's, uh, they did a fine job with it. And I thought, I thought it was well, that storyline, the, the, the A story was extremely well written. And I thought Robert Duncan McNeil did a really good job directing it. And of course, Jerry Ryan, and in particular, Robert Picardo really carried the ball. I mean, they, they, they did a great job. Yeah, and um, uh, an episode that he um, that he directed, of course, and and was in too. I mean, he could have made it. I, I guess it wouldn't make quite as much sense to have uh, Harry Kim make a bet with the Doctor. Although they continue, they, they there's that connection between Harry Kim and Seven that they kept trying to push, where you right. know he he wanted to date her, and then he was kind of mad at her because they couldn't date, and maybe he would have fit in that. But yeah, just having himself in it a little bit, but not take over the episode was um, was a good move, I think, for him. Something else I didn't realize until I was preparing for the episode is that the B-plot of the episode, where Neelix tries and fails to keep uh, Tom and the Cadi uh, ambassador in line, is very similar to another movie, uh, the plot of the film My Favorite Year, starring Peter O'Toole and Mark Lynn mm-hmm. Baker, uh, in yeah. which uh, Baker's character, who's a TV sketch writer, has to keep O'Toole's character, um, a drunken aging movie star, from going off the rails before a TV appearance. Um and that film, of course, is based uh, in part on executive producer Mel Brooks's experience writing for Sid Caesar and your show of shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but you're exactly right. Um, although um, I think my favorite year did it to greater effect. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like Scott Thompson. Uh, I like him in general. I loved him in Kids in the Hall and Larry Sanders show. He's 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 a he's a good co- comedic actor. But I I. I I think he was miscast in this role. Hmm. Perhaps he just couldn't rise to the occasion, or perhaps he wasn't directed, or perhaps they got exactly what they wanted and it just wasn't to my taste. But it was a little (laughs) over the top for me. It certainly was. Um, That's kind of what worked for me, though. Um, Yeah. We've talked before uh, on previous episodes about the kind of necessary ostentatiousness of Trek of these amazing future humans who don't know what money is and, and whatnot. 
Um, right, right. And I, I relish every chance that they get to not completely change the show so it's uh, Tom Paris, you know, cruising around in his Ford F-150, but to kind of <laughs> pop that bubble and put some fun stuff in. And so that's why I thought the, uh, again, the sitcom-y elements of that worked a little bit, even though, yeah, I mean, they're, Voyager's just watching this ambassador just break down and basically lose his mind and just go off the deep end. Like you think somebody would step in. They just leave right. it. They just well, leave it to Neelix to watch this guy stumble around. Particularly Chicote, since he's still on the ship. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do have to think, I, I do have to ask Paris in a Ford F-150, not a Mustang. Oh, well, I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> There's there, there is something about a, a Ford truck though. I think when he, when they go back in time to uh, San Francisco uh, in the nineties, he's, he's driving a, a Ford something. You know, I, uh, I I I watched the episode twice actually in preparation for for talking with you today. And um, the first time I watched it, I, I thought Scott Thompson was just way over the top. And the second time I watched it, I was able to enjoy it more, his performance more. Um, and I and I thought it it worked better than I had thought initially. But I still, it's not quite to my taste. I, I you know, but <laughs> but um, uh, and it was and it, the the. Um, the head of his government who who transports to the ship and then goes back with uh with uh uh Tuvok and Janeway right. uh, that's Ian, Ian Abercrombie right from uh I think probably best known for his role as Mr. Pitt on Seinfeld is that right Sure yeah that was interesting to me because it was kind of a thankless role it was in and out Yeah yeah <laughs> Pretty much. And it's also kind of a fizzle to the conflict. I mean, we don't want to send Scott Thompson back to this world where he'll be miserable forever. But right. they they build up so much that it's these abstemious monks, you know, who have to be careful what they do. And the guy's like, have a little fun. What, what, yeah. what will it hurt? Yeah. 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 And, uh, I, you know, um, you brought up the, the actor who played William Chapman. I actually thought he did a pretty good job. I thought he was fairly charming uh, in, in his attempt to... to Seven. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and um, you can see um, his his nervousness, but you also see that he he really wants to to make this work because, I mean, he's landed seven of nine. I'm sure you know we don't hear the scuttlebutt on the ship, but I'm sure everybody is very impressed, you know, with how attractive and capable she is. And I like how kind of broken he is at the end of the scene after she's literally like broken his arm. Well, literally broken. Yeah. yeah. And he's just like, oh, can we do this later? <laughs> I just can't take it. I got lobster all over me. Yeah, I thought that was, yeah, it was just, he was, uh, well, he, you know, the, he, when he escorts her over to the table and she has to look to the doctor and say that, you know, should I take his arm? He's offering me his arm. And, <laughs> yes. and, so she, and he not the doctor nods. Yes. So she takes his arm and then he pulls her chair out for her to help her, you know, and she just completely doesn't even see it and just takes it because she's just in charge of her own life. She's not, sure. she's not used to any sort of chivalrous actions, you know, uh, sure. doesn't not even aware of them. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was, and, and, and he just kind of, you know, the, the, the attitude that he gives, uh, okay, and it just sits. And, um, and of course, we're told by Paris earlier in the episode that Chapman is notoriously anxious around women. Um, and, and so that really sets, up, sets this up uh, on top of that. He's not just some, some confident uh, guy who, who just, you know, steps in and, and, and sweeps her off her feet, he, you know, would that, <laughs> that were possible. But, but he's not that. He, and so he's, he's anxious when he, when he's, and nervous when he uh, goes out with her. And, and I thought he played it in a very sweet and charming way. And it was also 
um, not, not heartbreaking in the way that the, it was with the doctor at the end, but it was a little sad that, you know, he's trying very hard, and you watch him just realize, yeah, this isn't, this isn't quite what I wanted it to be. Right, right. You know. And you also, know, she's, that, he's one of two people that Seven picked based on her criteria, and now this one's out. So it's also sort of tragic because it's like, I hope she does find somebody. There's nobody else on the board. Well, and it's it's unfortunate because you I when if you told me the plot of this episode before the episode, I would have thought the Doctor and Seven. Yeah, that does not make a lot of sense. But it was so well written and so well played that when the episode was over, it it was it, it felt like a little tragedy that they actually didn't get together because they did seem well suited to each other. For sure. one thing, they're both outsiders, right? Yeah. You know, and and Star Trek really, from its inception with Spock and then on to Data and and Odo, it really has this track record of 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 dealing with people who don't feel like they fit in. You know, in part because mm-hmm. they're not. You know, I'm not from around here. Yeah. I'm not like you. Um, and I've had different experiences than you, and and yet I'm around all of you. You know, I, so Star Trek deals with that a lot, and there's. For, for to watch two outsider type characters come together and realize, well, the audience realizes that you know what they are a pretty good match. It's, this does make some sense, and and I would never have guessed that before seeing the episode that it would that it would work the way it did. Yeah, I suppose that we on Voyager we have that with Paris and Taurus uh, in a way where Paris is the guy who is uh, not cut out for Starfleet, doesn't really fit in, and Taurus is somebody who. Uh, emotionally is and uh, just culturally is trying to find an identity and they kind of find each other in that same way. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true too. Yeah. Um, which makes a lot of sense. Although you still, yeah. I mean, I think, I think Paris and, and Torres, um, I think they try to fit in and I think they do find their place. I mean, it seems to me that the doctor is always awkward and always, (laughs) always, fighting um to to have his place and the same sure. is true of seven but yeah i mean i can i can see you know the outsider status of of paris and and torres you know what's interesting about this episode too is just the the almost complete absence of janeway and tuvok yeah. uh, and chakotay <laughs> yeah i mean just just uh, i mean they're there for their residual and gone yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah, it does play out sort of in the in the margins, or you know, while the uh, authority figures are away, we're we're doing this uh, right. instead, learning dating lessons. Yeah, this episode is you know in a way an homage to My Fair Lady, and I think a pastiche or homage gets used in all mediums, but you, you tend to see it a lot in weekly TV. I think there's often so many episodes that you have to do in a TV series, and each one. Uh, at least in this era of TV, um, it had to be a self-contained story. So I, it's convenient to find a classic plot or a setup and, and put your characters into it. I'm always looking out for familiar plots when I watch genre TV, like, oh, they're they're doing a Rashomon, or, oh, look, it's, they're doing right. Moby Dick. Yeah. And I think modern TV uh, is doing this less and less because shows are more comfortable with uh, long-running plots and serialization. So I think you end up borrowing some elements, but I think it's tougher to do a specific homage when you've got to keep the story going week to week. I think you're right. I think, you know, television obviously has changed dramatically in the last, just in the last decade. I mean, Reed Hastings uh, has, has changed the, yeah. what television is, the, the head of Netflix. Um, it, it, it's interesting because so many 
TV shows out there now are are high concept, mm-hmm. um, which which was which used to be a very rare thing. They're serialized, which used to be a rare thing, and they can be any number of episodes, right? right. So so whatever tells the story. But that serial nature of the of the six, eight, ten, twelve episode seasons, to me, they feel like chapters in a book. I mean, that's often the way these shows play out. Now, you'll have a season that, in some ways, because of the the, the beginning, the middle, the end of the, of the season, the story arcs, the character arcs, very much plays out like a novel. Yeah. Um, and and that, to me, not just as a writer, but as a reader, that that, that just. Uh, appeals to me just as a a a, a, a lover of storytelling uh, I, I just really like that but when back in the day you know when they were making voyager it was very much you know your your you know 18 20 22 episodes a season and you do have to be you know, it wasn't it was i mean voyager was somewhat serialized in that they had you know we're trying to get home yeah you know it's uh, you know we're Gilligan's Island in space, right? Um, yeah. right, right. So you know, uh, but they did have to have the self-contained episodes, and so yeah, they, you know, go and and say let's do My Fair Lady this week. Although I, it's interesting because who who would watch My Fair Lady and think the Doctor and Seven? I yeah. think that's the thing that's really unusual about it. I think I, I would almost have picked any other two characters. Um, but I don't think it would have worked as well as the two that they chose. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And <laughs> you you look at the way that TV is going and there are a lot of positive things, uh, aspects to these serialized long running stories, like you said, uh, from a storytelling perspective. But part of me still sort of misses the, you know, the five act structure of a 42 minute episode. And I'm sure it'll never go away. And this sounds like complaining that, you know, they don't make wax cylinders like they used to anymore. But <laughs> um, but I, I just like this weird, if it does almost go away or die or, or become sort of archaic, we have this record of this weird time where we got really good at telling stories in five acts, you know, in between commercials for 40 minutes or so, uh, or tw- in 22 minutes or so uh, on TV. You know, it's interesting, though, because... I do see a lot of these these shorter season serialized television shows that still play out in a four or five act structure. You can see, you know, particularly when you're when you're watching episodes that are 42 minutes long on Netflix or whatever. You're thinking, okay, they've they've structured this to eventually make its way over to broadcast television, mm. and and they can they because you you see the beats before what would be commercial breaks, yeah. and there's enough time. You know, you're, you're doing a 42 minutes episode. That's plenty. Plenty. That's 18 minutes of commercials we can put in if we throw this on on network television. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I, I, you know, who knows? I, I doubt <laughs> that we'll ever lose it entirely. I mean, you still have network television, but I think it's even, even though there's all of this high concept serialized storytelling, there's still there still is uh, enough um, uh, um, episodic stuff being done at least right now. Oh, uh, and it, yeah. it seems to me people like that enough that. You know, it's a commitment to kind of want to watch something serialized, right? Yeah, for and, sure. And sometimes people don't want to make that commitment. Yeah. I think my favorite form of, of the medium at this point is the, the sort of hybrid between, like, the two styles. Something like um, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul have these mm-hmm. long meta plots that whenever a new season starts, I have to watch a YouTube video to, like, remind me what happened before. Sure. But yet every episode still ha- – it opens with something 
And that is sort of describing what we're going to be dealing with over this hour of TV. And then it usually ends in some way that satisfies whatever that was. But we know that you know, the story is going to continue. Like the, the main right. conflict is, isn't over. Well, that also points up another difficulty with the, the current sort of structure of the new television, which is, I mean, the, the, the shorter season serialized things. Also, that you binge, right, when yeah, Netflix right. or Hulu or whoever drops it up, uh, you know, all, all episodes in a season at once. So you, you spend a week or two watching 10 episodes of a season and you're done. And then you don't get to see the next season for a year, a year and a half, yeah. which is different than when you were watching episodic television, you know, as a kid or young adult or whatever, and you would watch it from September to May. Yeah, that summer break was long enough. <laughs> you'd have to, yeah, you'd have the three months, but when the three months were over, because you'd also stayed with these characters over the course of a nine-month season, you know, you kept in your head everything that was going on, right. three months off, and then you come back and you're like, you still remembered everything. Now, you watch 10 episodes in two weeks, and a year, year and a half later, you get the next season, you're like, wait a minute, who was that? What did they yeah, do? Yeah. What happened? Exactly you know, so, <laughs> you know, you saying going back to watch a YouTube recap of stuff, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, there are, like, TOS, TNG, and most of DS9, I can remember, you point out an episode, I can tell you what episode it was and what season and what was going on. Voyager, which is a series that I've watched mostly, you know, later on in streaming, and definitely Enterprise, they all kind of run together, and it's yeah. hard to remember exactly how far they are from home and what hairstyle Janeway has. Right, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and you know, what was interesting is Deep Space Nine really, I mean, the next generation played a little bit with, with serialized storytelling, but only only in a very minor way. Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine was, I think, the first Star Trek series to really go heavy with that. Um, with the serialization, and of course, it still had its episode. I mean, mostly it was episodic, and you know, even in the course of the the, the serialization, it had to be episodic. But um, they had the longer story arcs, um, and and some people didn't like that, and and some viewers did, and and I, I relished it. But I, you know, like anything, it depends on how well you do it, right? Yeah, definitely. Um... You know, it depends on who you ask. Uh, you were talking about um, sort of sampling plots and the repetition of story storylines. Uh, many literary literary theorists or narratologists, if that's a word, uh, claim that there's you know only X amount of stories, basic stories or premises. I've heard seven. You hear four. You hear five. You hear seven. Man versus man yeah. versus himself. Right. Man yeah. versus nature. Yeah. yeah. Everything can be boiled down to a stock plot, supposedly that recurs again and again in. Uh, again and again in human storytelling. But as somebody who's written a lot of fiction yourself, what are your thoughts on that premise? You know, I understand it, um, and it may even be true to some extent, but in order to make it true, you really have to generalize, you know? Okay. I mean, you can boil any, you know, you can take Robinson Crusoe, say, oh, that's man versus nature, right? Yeah. Um, but Robinson Crusoe is very different than Wild, which is the the Reese Witherspoon movie where she she, she walks, uh, was it the Oregon Trail? Whatever she walked, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and finding herself. And um, you could say that these are the same story, but they they play out very very differently, um, and with different beats. And so I don't I don't really buy into the notion. I, I guess you can generalize any story to 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 fit some one of these categories but stories are, are can be very very different and so i i, I don't know I, I i know this i never when i'm writing i have never once thought 
oh, I'm going to do a man versus man story, or a man versus himself. <laughs> right. So I just never, I never think about it. This I don't think be in those terms. Man versus man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I actually usually when I'm writing, I I start thematically. I mean, that's. I, I'm. Yeah, you get ten writers in a room. You have twelve different processes. But my process typically is thinking, what is it I want to talk about? What do I feel like talking about? Yeah. What, you know. Um, and, and so for me, it's very thematic, my starting point. Um, and, but it's not this, it's not, I try and let the the things I want to talk about and the characters that are involved sort of dictate how the story develops. I want to try and develop it in a natural fashion. Sure. At no time do any of these four or five, seven stories, whatever it is, <laughs> do they come into play when I'm mapping out a story. They just don't. Yeah, it just sounds like a good way to sell a book on narrative theory, basically. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, I got 99 right. plots. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Trek episodes that draw on other media for inspiration, um, I guess I should mention that I have another Star Trek podcast called Backtrekking that's committed to doing just that. Um, on the show, my co-host and I choose an episode of Trek, and we discuss the episode uh, alongside the real-world event or piece of media that inspired it. So, for example, we talked on the show recently about the Voyager episode Macrocosm, which is a clear homage to Alien. And we talked about, you know, like Die Hard inspiring the TNG episode Starship Mine. So if that sounds right. interesting, listeners, check that out. Yeah, actually, I, yeah, I didn't know that. That does sound interesting. Are there any books? I, like I like your other two <laughs> podcasts, whether or not I'm on them. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So. Uh, yeah, we, we just talked about um, Apocalypse Now and The Wounded on TNG. And tried to. I don't think it's an explicit. Oh yeah. It, I don't think it's yeah. explicit. I don't think I heard you know Renee Shavaria say that he, you know, was specifically looking at Apocalypse Now. But there's a clear, you know, parallel to the idea of a military commander who's kind of gone off the deep end and they have to go up the river to uh, right. to talk him down. Right. Yeah, we made a meal out of that. So yeah, check that and out. Of course, and of course, Apocalypse Now, right straight out of Heart of Darkness. That's right. We read. We actually read. We actually read Heart of Darkness for the show too. Right. I think as as Trek has gone on and on uh, and added more installments to its canon, it's I think it's found it fruitful or perhaps necessary to start looking to other media for inspiration and storytelling. And I think also looking back to itself, I think the later uh, Berman era series, Voyager and Enterprise, uh, show that the most. Um, you know, the early sure. series weren't above homage uh, right. at, at all. But I think that I feel like sometimes Voyager is the first um fanfic series of trek and i don't i don't mean that in a in a totally negative way i just think it's the first series to really try to um self-evaluate the premise of trek itself you know tos is the original tng is more tos but with a deeper emotional spectrum and storytelling ds9 it's, it's its own different thing it's a meditation on faith and war but voyager is a reaction uh, to the original premise of Star Trek of exploring space with endless prosperity. Right. But in this case, they're lost, they're out of food and supplies, and the humanist ideals aren't always the answer. In fact, sometimes they make things worse. And I don't right. think the creators and writers of the series, they're not going off in a totally new direction, but they're consciously creating a response to earlier Trek in in the shadow of earlier Trek, like a fanfic writer, a, a good fanfic writer, but a fanfic writer. No, I, I, I know what you're saying. I think you're exactly right. I do think... Um, trying to draw on inspiration from other um, tales or, or songs or what have you yeah. also serves to broaden Star Trek. Um, uh, I mean, and Star Trek is, um, it's funny because it can be very specific, especially for, for people who don't watch Star Trek. Uh, if you try and talk to them about the details of the show, it, it can feel incredibly specific. <laughs> yeah. 
But Star Trek, of course, as, as we talked about earlier, its its premise, um, its themes are are all about inclusiveness. And if you're broadening out to, you know, now now you're bringing in My Fair Lady or 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 Apocalypse Now, um, Heart of Darkness, whatever, you're sort of broadening the the scope of the show to include. Um, other, not just pop culture, but culture, um, and uh, I, I think that broadens the appeal of the show as well. Mm-hmm. Trying essentially to actually include everybody in the audience, yeah, you know, a, 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 or, or potential audience. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think the real tragedy of Voyager and Enterprise, though, is that they never really accomplish. Well, in Voyager, for sure, they, I don't think they accomplish much by trying to destruct deconstruct uh, the premise of Trek. I think that Federation ideals do tend to be the right answer uh, every week, just like in the Alpha Quadrant. And all the aliens are just humans with increasingly elaborate foreheads. Um, right. And I know that the network oversight kept the show from getting all that weird from week to week, but if there was ever a chance to make some Trek that was really unique and unfamiliar, um, that was it. I mean, it ends up well, being yeah, pretty I recognizable think... in the in the uh, sum of, of the thing. I think Voyager in particular, yeah, you're right. It, that that was the opportunity, and it's unfortunate they that they ended up not not going as as far I think as they could. Um, you know, the episode of Voyager that I I co-wrote, which is called Prime Factors, which is depending on how you count the ninth or tenth episode of the first season. Right. Um, you know, one of the things you know, the, the the basic premise of the the episode was to have the Federation, these Starfleet officers, have their own ideals turned back on themselves, sure. right? Because it's it's about them coming upon a race that has technology that get them, if not all the way home, at least a lot closer to the Alpha Quadrant. But the alien race won't share because they don't have their own prime directive. Yeah. Um, you know, and that that's the kind of stuff that I love. I do like exploring the Federation ideals, but... Um, I don't. I, I agree with you that I don't think Voyager and Enterprise quite. Um, I don't want to say they paid lip service to the ideals. They, I mean, they brought them up, but they didn't. I don't think they did really uh, in-depth explorations of them. It, it was a lot of references here and there, but they didn't really. I don't think test things out um, in in a way that they could have. Yeah. Well, it's certainly like my favorite episodes of Voyager are doing that episodes like prime factors or episodes like Scorpion where Janeway is like, well, what if we make an, an alliance with the Borg? Like, what if we do the unthinkable right. to get my right. 145 people home? Right. Uh, love and romance are subjects on Trek uh, as they'd be in any pot- popular medium. But I think on Trek, love and romance um, are often involved in cautionary tales of the complication of relationships between races or, or species or, or even coworkers. I'm not sure if it's because Trek is a military setting, but I feel like often the love stories or romance stories um, have a sort of didactic kind of uh, finger shaking uh, feel to them. And I think those elements are somewhat present in the seven doctor pairing. It's a fairly straightforward romantic story, um, but when we get to the end, I mean, I, I don't think the audience has any real objection towards them getting together. I mean, your personal mileage may vary whether that you think they're, they're right for each other. But I think the the impulse for uh, us is to want to see them get together by the end. Sure. I think it's because you see the genuine emotion in the doctor. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you can see how um, that they are actually suited to each other, something that I would have not, like I said, before the episode, I didn't think this would work, yeah. and it worked completely. But I think, I think, 
I don't think it's so much the the the, the, the cautionary uh, tales uh, of romance. I don't think that the, the the I don't think it's because of uh, some sort of certainly puritanical finger wagging. It's not. I, I don't think it's any of that. I I think it has more to do with storytelling over the course of a series. Uh, okay. Because I mean, if you look at Next Generation, right? There was always a a a, a chemistry between Picard and and Crusher, yeah, and, yeah. you know Beverly, uh, and and they had a history, right? Yeah, and, and they and they occasionally would reference it, but they clearly stayed away from it. And I, but I don't think it's because um, oh, you know, a superior shouldn't get together with you know somebody who, <laughs> who is under their command. Or yeah. I think it was it's because once we hook up Picard with Beverly, yeah. then. Um, you know, these are heroes, so presumably they're not going to be cheating on each other, right. which means they're dedicated to each other, which means what happens if we have an episode we want to do where Picard has this romance with somebody else, right? Then we do, what do we do? Do we have to break them up first? Uh, it just adds a lot of complications to a television series storytelling that uh, it becomes it's like minutia in a way, right? Mm. If, if, we're go, if we want to do this episode with Beverly getting involved with somebody or Picard getting involved with somebody, but they're together, we have to do something beforehand to make it acceptable. Yeah, or yeah. if it's not acceptable, then we have to deal with the fallout. And these are things that you know they kind of sometimes just take up too much air. Um, Interesting for for the storytelling that you actually want to do. Yeah, right. Maybe I'm looking. So I think it's sort of a more practical. Yeah, writing thing that that has Star Trek sort of frowning on romance. Maybe I'm in a way I'm looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Maybe because the practicality might be that we don't want to get our characters tied up in something, but the net effect is it seems like Picard's just really got problems with relationships. Like he just can't ever <laughs> well, really be know, with it, anybody. It, it's funny because when I when I wrote Crucible, the the, the original series trilogy. Uh-huh. I wrote a McCoy book and a Spock book and a Kirk book, and I tried, when I sat down to write them, I was like, well, what do we not know about these characters? And I watched the original series from beginning to end, and the animated show and all of the the um, films that included original series characters. And when I was done with it, I kind of realized that, wow, McCoy just has no love life, mm. right? He he just, and I, and it's, you know, he's got Natira in For the World is Hollow, um, but you know, he, there's an occasional dally. I mean, he, you know, he, there, there are the two, uh, the two women on on sh- the Shorely planet. Yes. <laughs> um, but but they're they're sort of and they're, um, uh, Tanya, what's her name? Uh, uh, oh, from from Shorely, the, the the ensign there that he that he seems to be involved with. But there's nothing that continues for McCoy, and he doesn't really talk about relationships at all. I, we know. We don't know within the context of the show, but outside the show, we know McCoy is supposed to be divorced and yeah. they drove him to space and all of that. Yeah. But but the, just the storytelling, which uh, really made McCoy into something of a loner on the show, uh-huh. which I don't think was anybody's intention. I just think it was an artifact of the storytelling. It, this is just something that that if you look closely enough, this is what developed, even though nobody intended this to develop. Um, and I think that can happen, maybe less so now because shows are more sort of serialized. When you watch the original series, when they make reference to a previous episode, it's a shock 
because it only yes. happens a couple of times. Yeah, right. Um, right. And it's sort of delightful in a way watching it when they do make reference to a pre, you know on a meteor seven you tricked the garden you know Kirk says to Spock right. uh, yeah. uh, you know but it's you know can you do that again uh, but that that it almost never happened yeah so I mean I mean the original series was so severely episodic um, that it's it's kind of nice when you get that 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 continuity reference. Um, but these things, especially in episodic television, happen. They, these, like I say, McCoy develops as something of a loner, although I have, I, I, I'm completely sure nobody had that intention. Yeah, that's probably true. I really wish that we could have, maybe this just wouldn't have been um, fodder for uh, 60s uh, primetime TV, but I, I wish we could have seen more of his life uh, and his you know post-divorce and how he deals with that episode where he has to meet you know to talk to his ex-wife or something like that just getting getting more depth had, of that character they had intended that had they not i think dorothy fontana had intended uh wasn't there an episode joanna or something that i, the I don't animated know series? written or oh. I, I do believe they had something okay. the animated series had joanna yeah his daughter yeah. um but yeah, I, I mean, it would have been nice, and maybe if the show had gone more than three seasons, they eventually would have done that. But yeah, yeah. that's not. That also wasn't. It wasn't how Star Trek was. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, it. I mean, it would be interesting to sort of see the original series um, in a serialized format, sort of today. I mean, I know they've done the films with the re- recasting, but with you know Chris Pine and, and Zachary Quinto and all, but. To, to watch a, a series of Kirk and Spock and McCoy where they could expand and, and we could explore their lives more. And, of course, some of the films did that, right? I mean, we got to, you know, see the Kirk yeah. and his son. Right. And, you know, right. have that, you know, and uh, when people like characters, they want to know more about them. They, you know, they, and, and by knowing more about characters, by understanding, oh, Kirk has a son and he had a failed romance and, and he doesn't get to see his son – well, people can empathize with that, or at yeah. the very least, sympathize with that. Um, and that, you know, people like that. I mean, that's why people like storytelling, because because it informs their lives, it informs them about society, about other people, and, and it's kind of a big deal. So, but that's, you know, it's not just Star Trek. That's just not the way episodic television was in the 60s. Yeah, that's true. There's um, an idea that I've been kind of, kicking around and I've been asking some guests about it, uh, which is, you know, Star Trek was canceled uh, at the end of its third season. And as we know from later Star Trek shows, like many Star Trek series really find their feet in their third season. And then the fourth season is great. Like they really take off. And I've been wondering what, what a fourth season of TOS would be like. And it begins like a dream. You're like, oh, how strong could that be? But then I remember that Star Trek was taking place at one of the most tumultuous times in American history, which we are doing our best to sort of replicate now, but it's, you know, still a big deal. So like a 1969 to 1970 Star Trek series, I have to wonder how far they would try to dig into uh, counterculture and what's going on. And I I don't know the people behind the show, um, not all of them, but some of them, I think we might get like a pro-Vietnam speech from Captain Kirk. I don't think that it would be what we want necessarily. I'm not sure they would land on the right side of history if they're going to do allegorical uh, storytelling. Well, of course, there was a private little war in the original series, which Kirk really did come down sort of in a pro-Vietnam way and was just freaking wrong, at least the way I read it. And, And there was Errand of Mercy in which he's, you know, 
telling, you know, c- complaining to the other games, we have the right to wage war, Captain. Yeah. <laughs> right? Wait, yeah. And Kirk's got to, you know, and actually that's one of the things I did like about the original series is Kirk was, Kirk was occasionally wrong, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, the thing about, from a practical standpoint, I understand the point that you're making, and but from a practical standpoint, Star Trek, the original Star Trek, went in the other direction uh, from from Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. It Star Trek ha- hit its stride early in the first season, uh, and the first season is probably, at least in my way of thinking, the the, the superior season. Hmm. And the second season was also very good, and we had the characters really, the actors getting really comfortable with the characters. But Star Trek was canceled after its second season and revived. But Gene Roddenberry and and the other uh, other of the writing staff didn't survive that that, that cancellation revival. So we had Fred Freiberger producing the third season, and, you know, Star Trek's weakest episodes, you know, are, are all over the third season. Yeah. Well, I just think that if it could have, I don't, I guess more, you'd have to wave your wand a couple of times to make this work. But like if, right. it, if it could have had stronger ratings or the network could have measured those ratings in a better way and had picked up momentum or kept momentum in the third season into a fourth season, I don't know. Maybe now that it's more of an establishment, you see people like Gene Kuhn and DC Fontana drifting back to the show. Maybe, you know, after Tarzan doesn't get made and all, pretty maids all in a row fails right. Roddenberry decides to see what's going on on the right. TV side you know but I think Roddenberry was not necessarily the best storyteller in the world but he was a good shepherd of people who did tell mm-hmm. stories yeah yeah well and, and I think you know that first season one of the reasons it was so strong I think is they didn't just have strong television writers they reached out to strong science fiction writers yeah. people who were writing prose yeah you know, they they had, you know, Norman Spidrad uh, doing Wolf in the Fold yeah. and, and the Doomsday Machine. Yeah. And I mean, that was in the second season. But, 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 I mean, they did reach out. To, I mean, they had, you know, uh, or, you know, Richard Matheson doing The Enemy Within. And they, they, I think that helped the show a lot, yeah. too. Um, yeah, I mean, it would, it, I, I will say this, too, in rewatching the original series from stem to stern, one of the episodes that I had always despised. Um, I watched with sort of new eyes because you were talking about counter. What, what would a fourth season and 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 maybe addressing the counterculture yeah. look like? There's an episode that that not only did I despise, but many people <laughs> despised. And when I watched it again, I thought, you know what? There's a lot of good stuff in this episode, even even as it ends poorly. It's a it's actually. There's a lot good in here, and I was surprised to think that. And I've mentioned it to a few people, and none of them have agreed with me. But it's the way to Eden, okay? Uh, which is absolutely, you know, the, the uh, counterculture, uh, uh, you know. And it, but they're really, it's surprisingly. I mean, it's it's kind of cornball, and it does not end well, right? Um, re, you know, but but actually, there is stuff in there that's that's. It really is talking about the current day, and it's 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 actually pretty fascinating um, yeah. if you give it a chance. You can't make that happen with Spock's brain, but <laughs> you, you can make it happen with the way to eat. <laughs> oh, we just got done talking about Spock's brain in another episode. Uh, yeah, I the way to Eden, it's th- that ending is a problem because I think that there are a lot of um, there's a lot of positivity that we associate with. Um, Charles Napier and his and his band of merry idiots, uh, yeah. but they're and they're being led by you know a, um, a Maharishi type you know that we're 
obviously the show is you know, we don't like this guy, but there's also sort of I feel like that's that's that fine. It could break both ways because it seems like you know Spock is hanging out with Charles Napier and playing the lute, and that's cool. But then what they want is self-destructive. And I, that's right. and that's the metaphor for like, oh, where are these hippies going to end up? Where's this counterculture going to lead to? And right. so that's right. Well, that, and, and that's the leadership aspect there, right? I mean, because yeah. they seem they seem good-hearted. The, the the merry members of of uh, of Skip Homeyer's tribe um, <laughs> seem like they they have their hearts in the right place and they want things in a positive way. But but he's a madman. Yeah, he didn't to be a madman no um, but i feel like they could have just as easily ended up on a poison planet like without his help or leadership right right but but, but i'm not sure that that's really i mean that's not the message i would have wanted to tell right yeah um so but but it's still it's still there's a lot more to that episode than i thought there was i could see that um, the episode that we're supposed to be talking about is someone to watch over me. Uh, in that episode, you know, Paris refers to the doctor educating seven on romance as the blind leading the blind, which is an expression that when you consider that in the 24th century, a blind man is the chief engineer of the Federation flagship, that seems a little outdated. However, right. I do appreciate the sentiment. Um, the doctor is... He has emotional intelligence, but not quite enough to see how absurd his lessons are. And I think of it as like kids dressing up in their parents' clothes and having like a tea party, like some of the interactions right. between him and Seven, which I think are uh, really endearing. But I'm not sure, you know, clearly the, the lessons aren't that successful. Right. Well, well, you know what? I'm not I'm not sure that that's entirely true because, well, you know what? They succeeded for him, right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. You know? Uh, and 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 really, sort of, you know, the doctor's not the only one playing dress up. It's seven as well. Yeah. I mean, neither one of them really. I mean, the, she he doesn't see the absurdity of of some of his lesson plans, but neither does she. Yeah. Right. And the and and I get the sense throughout the entire episode that seven of nine is not is not having problems with the dating rituals and all of this for any particular reason other than uh, inexperience and mostly fear. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, she seems like a, a character who, she, when, she, when she knows what she's talking about, she's talking about, you know, quantum mechanics, she's, she's golden, right? She, right. Can, she, she can go toe-to-toe with anybody, but she's talking about something about which she has no knowledge or insufficient knowledge. It, it's, it's scary. Right. I mean, yeah. she wouldn't put it that way, but she does even say when she sits down, when he says when Chapman on their first, on their date says, you know, that he he was nervous. She says, I am unfamiliar with dating as well. And uh, so I am experiencing anxiety as a result. Um, you know, I, I think that's she gets that anxiety is throughout the entire episode, even if it's if it's buried and if she doesn't want to admit it or. And I think that's really why she gives up at the end, not because there's nobody suitable um, but because it, it has not gone well for her, yeah, and it's, right? it's because not worth the She feels effort, embarrassed yeah. by it. She feels she doesn't want to do something she's not good at. Yeah. I love the fact that there is a lot of uh, showing and not telling, too, in that depiction. Uh, usually in a, in a show like this that's aiming at a wide audience, you get a character saying, I don't feel comfortable doing this because I don't know. You know, they'll, they'll tell you the whole thing. And sure. yet the episode uh, opens with her spying on Tom and Balana 
you know, ostensibly for scientific purposes. But we know that throughout the entire episode, we'll see that she can't even express this this longing that she has, this loneliness that she feels. And I just think that's great. That's not what you would usually get out of really straightforward storytelling. Right, absolutely. And, the, and, and I think that's also a good note to mention is that really, I, I was talking about, you know, her, her discomfort comes from fear, yeah. but her initial discomfort, which leads her to study Tom and Bellana, is loneliness. Yeah. And I mean, they never talk about that, but it's pretty clear. Oh, yeah. Right? She is, the, she is an outsider, and the doctor suffers from the same thing. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's really, it, it just amazingly makes so much sense for them to, to, to have this, you know, meeting of the minds, you know, they're, they're just, they, they go together. Well, they, they would, um, even when they were together, they made an interesting couple. I mean, when, it, when, and actually it was sort of when she let her guard down, right. Maybe when both of them let their guard down, when they, when they initially go to the reception, yeah. um, you know, she takes his arm and, you know, she, it, it's interesting. He says, do you, you know, you, you, you think we're having the reception would be good for you to, as an exercise to do this. And she says, are you asking me on a date? And he says, I guess I am. And she says, in that case, I accept. And it's all, there's no, you don't get that anxiety from her. Yeah. Because she's familiar with the doctor, right? And, right. and because he talks to her, she even says this, you and I, we get along a lot better because we just are straightforward and to the point, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so she's comfortable, and she, but she even then takes the time to say, am I dressed sufficiently yes. for this event? Right, right. And he says, yes, yes, you look perfect. And At the event it itself, you know, she performs perfectly. You know, she handles herself well. She charms everyone with the speech and everything. And I almost feel like yeah. the doctor may have created his own monster here because after all of his lessons and all of his telling her what to think and expect, she may actually have enjoyed it a little bit. She might feel, you know, like she enjoys the doctor's company. And yet when she's self-evaluating herself for have I made a love match or not, you know, she doesn't see what she's supposed to see or thinks she's supposed to see. And Mm -hmm. so it, it increases that just sort of tragedy of her walking out of the holodeck at the end, maybe ready to have a relationship on a different sort of terms a uh, different level or different terms than what the doctor has been describing this entire time with his 57 lessons about whatever, like they kind of miss, they, they kind of pass each other. Well, what he's describing and also what she imagines, because she doesn't really know, yeah. right? So she's, you know, she, she's, and she's evaluating potential matches by what? Looking at their resumes? Yeah. Looking at their, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's, she, so, so, you know, that's not the way to, 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 to find romance. And, but she doesn't even know that. Yeah, that's right. There's that thing in films where you've got the character who's like a high schooler or a teenager and they want this storybook romance. And then, you know, the guy who's their friend the entire time they don't realize is perfect for them. And hopefully right. by the end of the movie they do. But uh, yeah, in right. this case, it's just a tragedy because they don't. I, I'm, always, I'm always impressed by the range of Robert Picardo as an actor, you know, we see him be sort of persnickety and short as the doctor so much. Uh, and I just kind of feel like, well, that's Robert Picardo. And then I see him in, I don't know, the howling or a million other things that he's done. And he does make a howling. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, yikes. He did. Well, he does, uh, get, um, he, he gets a lot of mileage out of that character. I think he gets cast as that type of person a lot, but there's a lot that he is capable of. I, now I can't remember the name of the episode where, um, the doctor turns evil, like his program gets corrupted somehow and he becomes like the white eyed, like evil doctor. It's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of reference, but, but yeah, he's just so 
scary <laughs> and and he just seems so anodyne as the doctor and suddenly like he's this like lurking villain it's like this guy's pretty good at what he does he's yeah he's he's a very very versatile actor and i think you see some of that in someone to watch over me the episode we're nominally talking about yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because like i said the the beat when he realizes he has feelings for seven and and then a couple of other times throughout the episode his work is just it's very, very subtle, very subtle. but you know, talk about show, don't tell. Yeah. Uh, and he absolutely does that. You can see what he's thinking. You can see what he's feeling. And, um, and it's very different than, as you say, the anodyne doctor, you know, um, you, you get another layer to this character and it's just, uh, and, and you know, that what the shame is, is that seven has the longing for this layer and can't get there. Yeah. Right? She can't yeah. get to this, to get, get to, um, sort of discover what she what she needs um you know how to how to how to how to have a relationship or how to you know even even i mean people don't always date and then get married they date and just have fun right right let's go see a movie together what i mean so there are so many things where she's just missing out uh, and it's unfortunate and of course it's 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 because of the way she has lived our life the way our life has been ripped away from her and then had her reinserted into the society without proper socialization really yeah and you know i was just thinking about the fact once again another episode that isn't this episode but an episode like in theory where data is learning to date and learning or trying to learn how to be like an adequate partner this is you know you could think of this as a retread of that but again by looking at uh, a previous story or an homage to something else, they find new depth, and they don't end up repeating, you know, those the same bits. Well, of... I think that, I think in part because, in theory, is a great title for that episode because with data it is theoretical, right? Yeah. He doesn't have emotions at that point. He wants he's you know he's Pinocchio. He wants to be the real boy, right? But he's not. Seven is a real woman, but doesn't she, think of she herself. Doesn't know as how real. to be a yeah, real woman, right? right? Yeah. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's kind of similar, but it's also in a way turned on its head a little bit. Sure. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as we hit the end of the episode here, was there anything else that you wanted to mention uh, about this episode that we hadn't got to yet? I don't think so. I think we've we've covered it and this then and other ones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I it was. Um, I like you know it's a, you know it's a it, it's a bottle show. Um, it, it's. Um, um, which we sometimes those can be problematic, but they they it was really a good idea I think to cast Chakotay and Janeway and Tuvok to the margins mm-hmm. um, and focus in a really detailed way on on Seven and the Doctor because it, it really allowed I mean they they had more screen time they had more story time and it really allowed the story to develop in a way that. W- Again, forgetting about photons and force fields and 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 uh, Borg implants, a believable story. Yeah, you know, it, it developed in a way. It wasn't too quick. It wasn't too slow. It just it developed at a pace that um, really allowed you to 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 get into the episode. Yeah, I really love the fact that this isn't really what I would think about coming to a sci-fi series for uh, at the first. You know, an episode right. about <laughs> romance and and characters. Uh, trying to date or or find their uh, feelings, um, you come for the lasers and the and the shooting and all that. But yeah, once you the fact that Voyager at this point in its life can still deliver an episode like this that really takes you off guard and, and is kind of touching 
uh, is really is it's a good sign. It's a good sign. I like I like all, Voyager. All, it's a good show. It's all part of the human adventure, right? Right. I mean, you know, romance is part of the human adventure. Sure. Feelings, emotions. It's a it's a big you know, that, and that's been a mainstay of things Star Trek talks about from the beginning with Spock, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's not. I agree with you that it's not something you'd expect, but it somehow fits perfectly. Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, I like speculating on how different captains would handle the conflicts that come up in an episode. Uh, but Janeway spends most of the episode off the ship with the Cadi. I know that Kirk is your favorite captain, so I guess I want to know how badly do you think Kirk would ruin the Cadi society, a world dedicated <laughs> dedicated to abstemiousness with his visit? Well, yeah, Kirk would have uh, turned yeah, that place he, upside he down. <laughs> yeah, he would have wanted to show them the error of their ways and you know everything that they're missing. Yeah. And, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's Kirk gets a bad rap, and some of that actually comes from that that dreadful third season um, when this, the storytelling and the writing were just really often subpar. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have, uh, the Cadi and Kirk, it's, you know, Kirk, Kirk, a lot of times, particularly in the first two seasons was very respectful of other cultures, not a private little war, but <laughs> yeah. um, most other episodes, he was very respectful, you know, um, and, and certainly Picard was that way as well. And I mean, you, you saw Riker wearing a dress, right? And, For sure. And, <laughs> yeah. Was it Angel, Angel one, yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. How about, how about Cisco? What would Cisco make of the Cadi? That's a good question. He's already in yeah, a position a... where he gets this posting in the middle of nowhere, and then he goes down to the planet, and somebody's tugging on his ear all of a sudden, and I guess he handles that uh, pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's part of a, a Starfleet officer's training. I mean, you, you have to be that way. Well, again, it speaks to the ideals of the show itself, right? The ideals sure. of Starfleet and the Federation are the ideals of Star Trek. Yeah. Right, right. Don't interfere. You know, let's not, let's not have an, in other words, let's not have another Vietnam on our hands. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things and, and the notion of, of not just acceptance, but including everybody, every, you know, everybody gets a seat at the table. We have, you know, we've got, you know, 1966, it was unusual to have a black woman in a position of authority sure. on the bridge and an Asian man. And, and, you know, second season, we bring in a Russian, yeah, you know, yeah. that says something. Next generation brings in a Klingon, yeah. you know, who, I mean, all, all the, the Star Trek is always trying to say, we're all in this together. I did and, want to see, like, a minute after the episode ends, though, and the Cotties have beamed away, and Janeway's just like, oh, the most boring two days of my life. Put something in my coffee. I need a drink. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, would have been nice. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a promotion to the rank of lieutenant commander. And as someone in a command position, what do you think about fraternizing between crew members? Oof, uh fraught with danger, I would imagine. Mm. Um, it's particularly problematic when you're dealing with people on different strata mm. uh, of a command hierarchy, right? Yeah. Captain dating an ensign is problematic for the ensign, for the captain, and for the crew, right? Yeah. I mean, in general, I would say fraternization is fine. I mean, you're out, this, this is not just your, 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 military posting this is where you live yeah. i mean you're out especially in the delta you know, quadrant especially in the delta quadrant yeah. right and in fact you know if you made some decisions for starfleet and and in the alpha quadrant you might make different decisions when you're lost at sea yeah right um and in fact 
I mean, they, they sort of dealt with that from time to time. Not not enough, mm. but um, yeah, you know, fraternization. It, it, the, the big thing is the is is the um, is is the dealing with the power structure. I think. Um, um, but of course, humans four hundred years from now, three hundred, four hundred years from now, are supposed to be more evolved, right? right. Yeah. Um, and one would presume we've we've somehow bred out um, the need for a Me Too movement because you know men are better. Well, let's um, hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but I I don't, I don't know. It can. It's. Uh, I mean, they dealt with that on Star Trek, right? You, you know, when when Picard has to make a decision about about whether or not to include the woman he has feelings for on an away mission. Right. And then when somebody loses their life, how does he deal with that? Right. And yeah. how does she, and how does she deal with knowing that her fate is in his hands and he's, he's struggling with, you know, do I show favoritism because yeah. I want to show favoritism? Yeah. I, so, I believe that yeah. she was a commander, a full commander. So it wasn't a question so much of, is he abusing his authority by being with her? But it was more, you know, personally, can I make, can I be um, impartial and make uh, rational decisions knowing that well, somebody well, I what, love And she was mature enough, too, that, yeah, 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 yeah. What, you wouldn't think it was, it was yeah, a, pa- a power thing. But at the same time, it impacted his ability to command, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and her ability to do her duty, too. There were just open questions there, and reasonable open questions. Sure. Um, but, you know, then you see, you know, Tom and Balana, and hey. Well, that's fine. Yeah, right. They, they, they get along so well, everybody uh, uh, on their deck knows when they're having sex. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> according, according to Seven of Nine. Seven has the data, right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I would suggest you might have a general guideline for a command hierarchy, but at the same time, kind of a case-by-case basis, really. Yeah, they just did that on and off thing with Janeway and, uh, or will they, won't they, Janeway and Chakotay for so long. Right. Um, and I guess I'm glad that they never um, pulled the trigger on it, but they clearly, they just... Well, and he was, even though he was her first officer, he was initially a commanding officer, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. When they combined the crew. So there's the, the power structure sort of, even though she's he's serving as her first officer, the power structure sort of disappears there. Yeah. And another show, like, like Battlestar Galactica would have dove right into that, and we would have seen the relationship the effects that it had, the breakup, the effects that that had. But I just don't think right. that Trek wasn't that kind of show, you know, in, in 1999. No, I mean, I think under, under Rick Berman's stewardship, he had very specific ideas about about what he wanted Star Trek to be. Yeah. You know, and that's not a positive or a negative. It, I, oh, I think yeah, it's just yeah. factual. Yeah. I mean, Michael Piller really set up Voyager to be a study in conflict aboard a starship that we never got from Starfleet crews yeah. and that never ended up manifesting really on Voyager. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, the whole uh, Maquis-Starfleet dynamic disappeared almost immediately, yeah. yeah, which I thought was unfortunate because that, I think, was a very interesting thing to explore. Because specifically because we didn't see it in the original series or the Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and not not likely to see it anywhere else. At this right. Point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lieutenant Commander George, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? 
Uh, I, I'm, I got my website, D-R-G-I-I-I. That's David R. George III, D-R-G-I-I-I.com. As you said, I have a movie review site. That's moviereviewsbygeorge.com. I'm on Twitter, David R. George III. I'm on, uh, I've got a, pay, a writing page on Facebook, um, Instagram, I'm, I'm everywhere. We're all over the place. Aren't we all? <laughs> yes, we all are these days. And we know that you are working on some stuff you can't uh, talk about, but we'll be definitely looking forward to that. Thanks very much, Aaron. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, thanks again for joining me. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You, go f*** yourself. <laughs>